0: In 1975, the state of California passed a law requiring that the foam used in household furniture withstand fire for 12 seconds without bursting into flame. Since that time, the use of flame-retardant foam has become industry standard. But many of the chemicals used as flame retardants could be bad for your health, while we know little or nothing about the health impacts of others. What's more, a new study shows that those flame retardants don't stay put in furniture. They can be found in household dust at levels that exceed EPA health guidelines. Dr. Robin Dodson of Silent Spring Institute was the lead author of that study, and she joins me this morning from our studios at WGBH in Boston. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. Now, these kind of topics always stir up a lot of concern, and understandably so. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 866-999-4626 or email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. We're also on Twitter at Living Lab Radio. Now, Robin, let's just start with some of the basics. These flame retardants, um, what are they and, and what are they in?
1: Sure. So flame retardants chemicals are chemicals that are meant to essentially suppress fire um, if one were to uh, break out. And they can be found in a whole suite of different types of products. So you had mentioned furniture. um, Flame retardants, though, can also be found in building materials in our homes, electronics. and other things, you know, carpets, textiles, things like that in our home as well. So uh, these are chemicals that are intentionally added to products and a wide range of products in our homes. Now, they're not just, it's
0: not just like a coating. These are actually, when you're using foam, I mean, these flame retardant chemicals sometimes make up, you
1: know, 10, 20% of the foam, right? Certainly. To be effective, they actually they do have to be put in there at, at percentage levels. Um, so, yes, typically it's 5, 10, or 15% of that foam, say, um, in your couch uh, could contain flame retardants.
0: And are there any naturally occurring i mean the the ones we're talking about are primarily man made chemicals are there any naturally occurring flame retardant chemicals
1: uh we don't typically think about the naturally ma- uh man made one or the natural ones um but instead uh there are kind of natural ways to deal with flame uh retardancy so uh you can use kind of barrier methods or naturally flame resistant products themselves so things like wool um it's just naturally flame-resistant, so that is an alternative to using these chemicals. Now, I've actually read that there's some indication that these flame
0: retardants, the the man-made ones uh, that are in foam, may not actually work as well as we thought they did. Do we have any handle on you know, how many lives have been saved by the use of flame retardants or, or anything like that? Um
1: that's tough. I mean I, I so I'm not a, a fire safety expert. What my understanding though of reading the literature is that you're right that these uh flame retardants are not as effective as they might appear to be. Um in fact, some flame retard uh, some fire safety experts have shown that there's really no measurable benefits to putting these chemicals um in the products. Um in fact, it's shown that the, the, um, the levels at which you'd have to apply these flame retardants, instead of being at 5, 10, 15 percent, they'd have to be at, you know, 30 to 50 percent to actually be effective um, in, uh, in saving lives. So um, it's my understanding that currently the way that these flame retardant chemicals are used in products is, is providing no measurable benefit. Wow, that's kind of
0: sobering. I mean, you'd basically have to be sitting on a, a pillow full of flame retardants for it to work, is what you're saying.
1: Correct. Right. That has to be almost half Half of that f- um, pillow would have to be flame retardants. Yes. Yeah.
0: Now, the, the, the flip side to this is that, of course, we're now finding out that these flame retardants can have uh, a range of health impacts. Can you give us a sense of what some of the concerns are about flame retardants?
1: Sure. So many of these flame retardants are associated with thyroid disruption. So thyroid system in your body is one of your hormone systems. Um, and it's responsible for um, a lot in your body, um, especially for children. So it has an impact on development, reproductive development and metabolic development um, and neurological development. So it can really have an impact if you're um, affecting this thyroid system. Um, Some of the flame retardants are also associated with cancer. Um, In fact, um, six of them that we looked at are uh, are listed um, on California's uh, Proposition 65. um, And that is a a listing of chemicals that might have reproductive harm or act as cancer, uh, act to cause cancer in the body. Now,
0: the reason that, that these flame retardants are, are found in furniture is because California passed a law in 1975 saying that they had to be there. It was an attempt to save lives and, and reduce uh, deaths and damage from fires. Did we have any sense at that point of, of what, these, uh, what the negative
1: impacts of these uh,
0: chemicals could be?
1: Um, Not really, and it was actually not until uh, about 1977 that a researcher named Arlene Bloom actually published one of the first studies showing that a commonly used flame retardant, at that point a flame retardant that was used in uh, children's pajamas, uh, was mutagenic. Um, So she published that article and actually called for it to be removed from uh, uh, pajamas at the time, and that was really one of the first studies of its kind to try to link these flame retardant chemicals to health effects well and and at the time my understanding is that that they
0: did get rid of the flame retardants in in pajamas at that point it, the evidence seemed clear enough and and the the reasoning compelling enough but these chemicals have kind of uh snuck back
1: into the system why is that Right. So they were banned at the time simply in children's pajamas. Um, So the brominated tris, um, which was the one that was first banned in pajamas uh, due to Dr. Bloom's work, um, we found that in 75% of our homes. Uh, So certainly there are other uses of this. Um, It might be used in other textiles um, or other places in the home. Um, Another chemical that just a year later, um, was linked to to, um, to cancer as well, or it's, rather, its breakdown products was linked to can- were linked to cancer, and then withdrawn from children's pajamas. We found that in a hundred percent of our homes. Um, so these chemicals um, haven't gone away; um, they're still used within the um, within the industry, um, and unfortunately, they're sticking around our houses.
0: So when you say our homes, you're referring to this this new study that you've done. Uh, you looked at homes, uh, the, the dust in homes in California. How
1: many homes did you look at and, and how did you choose them? Sure. So this, um, this is a follow-up study to a study that we conducted earlier. And what we did is we had um, sampled these homes, house dust from uh, California homes, um, for a wide range of endocrine disrupting compounds back in 2006. So what we decided to do, because we know that, um, that Penta BDE, which was one of the main uh, flame retardants used at the time, we found that at higher levels Um, in that study than anywhere else in the world. Um, And so what we decided to do was revisit some of those homes that we um, saw in 2006 and resample their homes. And the idea here was to understand or to try to get a handle on what might the changes have been in the PENTA level, so that's the PENTA BDE, um, levels since the ban, um, but also to truly to really expand the view and to look at a much wider range of flame retardants. Since we know Californians are burdened with um, higher flame retardant levels than than other areas, um, we wanted to understand what might be, what the other flame retardants might be in their homes.
0: So you say Californians have have a higher burden because of this law requiring flame retardants in furniture.
1: Presumably, yes. The, um, the Penta BDE, which is a polybrominated diphenyl ether, um, that was the major flame retardant used to meet that California standard for upholstered furniture. So then are the results of this study something that are broadly applicable or
0: is this really just a problem for people living in California?
1: Um, unfortunately, it's not just a California story. Um, it, the California standard has essentially become the de facto standard. Um, about 80% of the furniture sold out there across the U.S. meets that furniture or uh, the furniture standard set by California. So, California's standard has essentially become the standard for the rest of the of the U.S.
0: I'm talking this morning with Dr. Robin Dodson of Silent Spring Institute. She's the lead author of a new study showing that potentially toxic flame retardants can be found in household dust at levels that exceed EPA health guidelines. If you have questions for Robin, we welcome your calls. We'd also love to hear if you've tried to reduce your exposure to flame retardants, what you're doing in your home. You can reach us at 866-999-4626. You can also email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org or... Tweet us at Living Lab Radio. Now, these uh, these flame retardants are in furniture, but obviously they're getting out of the furniture. If you're finding them in household dust, is it just a matter of uh, old furniture breaking down? Do we have any idea how these these flame retardants are are getting out of the furniture
1: and into our dust? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so it. it- we know that these flame retardants are added. Most of them are added so that they're not chemically bound to the uh, material itself. So they're not chemically bound, say, to the foam itself. Rather, um, they're they're put in there and they can easily leach out, essentially, so or migrate out of the furniture and then into the dust. Now, we study dust, um, and we know uh, things might go to dust simply because these these chemicals are kind of heavy, right? So they come out of the foam. Um, they can, you know. Go up into the air or whatever, but they could most often end up in dust. And studies have shown that dust is the, um, the major exposure route for these types of chemicals. So, um, yes, they can easily migrate out of the furniture and end up um, settling in our dust that can be found throughout the house.
0: Yeah, one thing I found particularly disturbing, uh, I'll have to admit right here that there's a fair bit of dust in my house. I have three kids and a job, so my house mm-hmm. is not always as clean as I would like. Um, but one of the things that's really disturbing is that because little babies who are crawling on the floor, or playing on the floor, they're really at one of the, the highest risks. They're really exposed to this dust. They've got it on their hands and, and they're
1: getting a lot more of it into their bodies. Yes, they are, unfortunately, because of that activity where, I mean, I have a toddler at home, too. I know that she sits on the ground and, and puts everything into her mouth. Um, so presumably, she's just getting a lot more dust into, into her body. Um, what's unfortunate about this is that the health effects associated with many of these chemicals, um, there's kind of a critical, window. Um, since these are thyroid disruptors, that critical window is during the developmental stage. So um, it's unfortunate that not only um, are the toddlers or, or little kids um, exposed to higher levels, levels of dust, um, unfortunately, that that matters more um, from a health standpoint.
0: Are there other vulnerable
1: populations uh, besides just the, the very young? Sure. Um, again, because these can affect um, thyroid systems, um, it can affect... Uh, you know us during multiple stages in our lives. Um, one of the chemicals uh, that we looked at is, a, is a, from a commercial mixture called Firemaster 550, and one of the components in that has been linked uh, to lower sperm count in men. Um, and as I had mentioned earlier, there are several of these that are listed um, as carcinogens. So. Um, While we are particularly concerned about children, um, unfortunately, uh, we are all uh, potentially um, vulnerable to these chemicals. I mean, this is this is potentially very scary um, sorts of
0: information to take in. Let's let's put some some numbers on this. How high are the levels? Are they at levels that we know are problematic or that we suspect are problematic? Really, really, how
1: concerned should we be about this? Sure. So we found some of these at levels that are higher than a, in a health guideline established by EPA. So that the guidelines that we used are um, that are are levels that are established by EPA under their Superfund program, basically to try to prioritize chemicals. And the idea here is that, you know, if you have an exceedance of this level, um, it means that further follow-up is necessary. And if you fall below that level, um, you may not be as concerned. So this is kind of a, a kind of a first pass to try to understand if these are found at levels of concern. And, and unfortunately, we found five flame retardants um, at levels of health concern, including the the now-banned uh PentabdE flame retardants, um, as well as these two uh, compounds that are, are called chlor- are associated with um, their chlorinated organophosphate flame retardants. Um, people kind of colloquially call them just chlorinated tris compounds. Um, and we found those um, at levels fairly high, up to uh about 0.01% of your dust. Um, so that's high for a chemical um, to be found in dust. And those levels are um, associated with uh, potential to cause cancer.
0: Now, you mentioned that you were finding high levels of a banned substance. How can that
1: still be in our dust? Sure. So um, part of the reason is because these things were banned back in um, you know, the kind of range, but in California they were banned in 2006. Um, so people haven't gotten rid of their furniture, right, necessarily in the last six years. Um, the other thing is that these things stick around. These um, polybrominated diphenyl ethers have actually been now listed as um, persistent uh, chemicals under kind of an international treaty. So they persist in our homes even um, when the source may have been removed. Um, This is not unlike another compound that – it's actually not a flame retardant, but another chemical that we looked for in people's homes, which is DDT, right? That was banned 40 years ago, and we're still finding it. So when we put these persistent compounds in products that we bring into our home, unfortunately, then just removing the source doesn't necessarily get rid of these chemicals. They they can stick around for a long, long time. Wow. Is there any way that a person can know or find out what is in, say, your couch – Um, Unfortunately, the labeling isn't quite perfect. Um, So, in a kind of a study that was that came out on the same day as our study, um, showed that the label—if you see a label on a um, product—and this label is the label for the California flame retardant, uh, sorry, California flammability standard that you had mentioned earlier. um, It's called Technical Bulletin 117. So, if you see that on your furniture, it's likely that that contains flame retardants. Now. What they found, though, is that the lack of label doesn't necessarily imply that there aren't flame-retardant chemicals in that product. Uh, rather, the, those, they can still find the majority of products uh, contained flame-retardant chemicals despite not having a label. So unfortunately, the labeling system um, doesn't quite work so well. Um, and so it's kind of going back to trying to choose products that might be uh, just naturally flame-resistant um, instead. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier that something like
0: 80% of furniture has uh, has these chemicals in it. But I can tell you from personal experience over the past several months, trying to find a couch that we're looking to replace our like 15-year-old couch and trying to find mm-hmm. a couch that does not have flame retardants in it, that doesn't cost something on the order of seven to $10,000 or more, perhaps a custom couch,
1: is really quite difficult. It is, unfortunately. Um, you're right, there are options, but unfortunately, they're they're a bit more costly. Um, So, you know, trying to choose some products, you know, wood, things that might be made of wood or wool um, um, might help um, in that regard. But I think this kind of gets back to the idea where um, maybe we should kind of ask or can, you know, request from the manufacturers that they actually try to make reasonable options for us without these chemicals in them. um, And, certainly the the more we ask for it, perhaps the um, greater likelihood that we might get something like that.
0: Now, I know you and I talked uh, on this show about a year ago about uh, endocrine disrupting compounds, these hormone-like chemicals that can be found in personal care products. And at that time, you said, well, with with, with that particular uh, situation, that the labeling is not very good, and even if they don't say that it's in there, it's often in there. And and we're, you know, you're saying the same sorts of things here that the labeling's not very good. Can we trust retailers when we, uh, you know, even if you call them or email them to actually know what is in the foam and and be able to give us a good answer about uh, whether or not the the foam in any particular piece of furniture is safe?
1: Um, I, you know, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that yes, if you call a manufacturer, they will, uh, you know, uh, to. You know about a p- particular piece of furniture that they should be able to tell you, but you have to remember that many of these um, places where you're buying furniture, they're getting things sourced in, and they don't necessarily know um, everything about those. You know, the foam that they necessarily got, or the or the um, the, bear, uh, the sorry the cushion, um, they don't necessarily know um, everything that might go in there. So they're going to hopefully tell you as much as they know, um, but I think this you know in combination with that. That work we've done previously, I think this, you know, if we kind of were to take a step back and think about this from a chemicals policy perspective, unfortunately, in the United States, we're kind of stuck because of um, Toxic Substance um, Control Act passed in the late in the 1970s. Um, We're stuck with the manufacturers can use a chemical um, and they can Assume that it's safe unless they're told otherwise. So they don't have to do thorough testing of any chemical before they put that into a product. Um, So this hindsighted approach to chemicals policy, um, if we were to take a new fresh look at that um, and compel manufacturers to actually test their products or test their chemicals rather before they put it into products, we wouldn't be stuck in this um, situation. Um, And, you know, we wouldn't have to kind of do all the work ourselves. I wonder if you could weigh in on where kind of the the burden of proof or I guess
0: where the, where the threshold is, you know, how much uh, knowledge do we need? How sure do we need to be that a chemical would cause a health problem before we should um, take action to ban it or, or remove it from products?
1: Well, I mean, I, I would say at the very least we need the information. I mean, right now we, um, we just lack. Complete information these chemicals just aren't tested thoroughly they're not tested across a whole life course you know understanding what they might do to to children during development to um, to people later in life um, so really we just don't kind of have that information about what that that kind of overall how much information we need to make a decision would be for these particular chemicals um, so I think it's more of kind of in a data gathering to try to really understand what that means. Um, that being said, I would say that f- studies like this, where we find levels in the home where we might be exposed um, at, a, at or above um, levels established by EPA as being of concern, um, that to me um, seems to indicate that we have some information and that we need to uh, move forward and get these things out of our homes. Now, the fact that there are EPA
0: guidelines you know, for, for levels of exposure and that we now do have, because of your study, some information about the, what the levels are in our homes, does that create any actionable situation?
1: Um, I hope so. So one thing that's actually, as a result of, of this work and, and uh, study that I had mentioned previously about flame retardants and couches coming out um, on the same day as ours did, um, We know that two manufacturers of one of the carcinogens um, have said that they're going to discontinue use of that chemical. Um, This is called chlorinated tris. Um, It was recently listed as a carcinogen under California's law. So um, that's great news. So we know that that um, has been in effect. The other thing that, you know, we're hoping that this can add to further evidence, um, and while California is now revising their standard, their flammability standard, we hope this provides enough evidence to show that people are exposed at levels of concern, so um, that California should take the appropriate steps to rethink that standard. And then certainly at kind of a national level, um, this adds to the evidence and adds, uh, supports the idea of, of chemical policy reform. I'm talking with Dr. Robin
0: Dodson of Silent Spring Institute about her studies on flame retardants in household dust. Uh, if you're concerned about the issue and have tried to reduce your exposure, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 866-999-4626 or email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. We're also on Twitter at Living Lab Radio. Now, we were just talking about, Robin, the the prospects of getting this California standard that requires flame retardants uh, revised, changed, um, perhaps the requirement uh, taken away or, or modified. But obviously, that's something that's going to take a while and, and would take a while for industry standards to change as well. Thinking more immediately for people who are concerned about what is in their home, can you give us some suggestions about how to
1: actually reduce our exposure to these chemicals? Sure. So, first of all, if we if we know these chemicals are found in furniture, um, most likely they're applied directly to the foam. Uh, one thing that you can do is just make sure that the foam is not exposed. So, if you have a ripped piece of furniture um, or exposed foam in any way, uh, to try to make to try to fix that um, to cover it up. Um, The other thing is we know that these chemicals like to come out of the furniture and and migrate to dust. Um, So reducing your exposure to dust in general should reduce your exposure to these chemicals. Um, Things like keeping dust down by vacuuming and wiping surfaces with wet cloths, um, washing your kids' hands frequently or your own hands frequently um, can help um, just to reduce your overall exposure to dust, which should then affect uh, your exposure to these chemicals. Ellen is giving us a call from Centerville. What's on your mind, Ellen? Thank you for taking my call, and thank you, doctor, for being here to give us the uh, information we need.
0: I have a question about a different substance, which is formaldehyde. I know it's in industrial carpeting, and I work in the health care system on Cape Cod, and they've done a lot of renovating. All the new carpet is loaded with this stuff. I can't breathe when I go into those spaces, and I'm wondering why healthcare care systems are using that, and if there's any information about the... Uh, health effects of breathing formaldehyde in carpeting. What can you tell us there, Robin?
1: Sure. So, right. So formaldehyde is not a flame retardant, so we didn't study it in this study. Um, but I will say that you're right. So formaldehyde can be found in a variety of different building materials. Um, it has been associated with a variety of health effects, including cancer. Um, it, you know, there are steps to take uh, to reduce your exposure to formaldehyde, unlike these chemicals, these flame retardant chemicals, formaldehyde is quite volatile. So, um, you know, one kind of easy way to reduce your exposure is simply to air things out, um, and you should be able to bring down the levels over time. Um, there are groups working on this. I know that, you know, there's health without harm, um, as well as some kind of state-level actions that are happening um, around formaldehyde. Um, so getting involved in those can help. Um, but, yes, unfortunately... Um, especially if this was just newly installed, um, reducing your exposure by trying to air things out um, may help in that situation. Ellen, thanks for your call. Now, Robin, I
0: I feel like, you know, just the flame retardant issue itself can be so overwhelming. And then Ellen calls with a question about formaldehyde. You and I have talked before about chemicals in personal care products. Uh, you can kind of reach a point with some of the stuff where it just feels like um, you're surrounded by toxics and you kind of shut down because you don't know what to do. How do you deal with that that sense of being overwhelmed by this issue?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, it, it It's difficult. I mean, it's certainly worrisome that we're finding these uh, chemicals. Um, in our daily lives, um, and that there, while well, we can take some personal steps to try to reduce that exposure, um, you know, there's only so much we can do. Um, I think this kind of gets to a larger issue, not only about chemical policy, but the idea of this kind of green chemistry. So, you know, the landscape in front of us from a chemistry perspective, um, there's this idea of green chemistry, uh, where we can actually study the chemicals and understand them before we're using them. So this is kind of a almost like a poster child for that. Um, that discipline, where if we could kind of green engineer or green uh, find green alternatives to these flame retardants, um, we could have a have a big impact. So certainly, I would you know reach out or call out to the green chemists out there uh, to take this up and to try to find some alternatives for us.
0: I mean, I feel like sometimes almost there's a sense of, of greenwashing though. Everything says it's green now though.
1: Right. I, and I agree. I mean, I think, you know, this is separate, though, from the idea of things being labeled and buying, you know, your eco-friendly furniture out there. The idea is to try to go back to the, you know, theoretical chemi- chemistry um, and to tr- really try to understand this from a chemicals per- perspective and then put it out there. So, yeah, this is different than the idea of of, of advertising and things like that. But it's kind of um, taking a step back to uh, the basics, essentially. All right. Well, Robin Dodson of Silent Spring Institute was the lead author of a new study showing that
0: flame retardants occur in household dust at potentially dangerous levels. She joined me this morning from our studios at WGBH in Boston. Robin, thanks so much. And thank you. Thanks also to Alan Mattis for production assistance this morning. As always, you can find more information on our website. Go to capeandislands.org and click on Living Lab. We had a few calls we weren't able to get to this morning. If you uh, still have questions, you can always email us or post a comment on our website. Again, that's capeandislands.org and click on Living Lab. This is Living Lab on The Point. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening.
1: Living Lab on the Point is produced by Heather Goldstone. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Tridell and Jenny Junker. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. Living Lab on the Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH.